Hello, and welcome to the Middle East Forums webinar series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We are pleased to have Mr. Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forums Israel office, join us here each Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type out your question. And now with no further ado, I'll turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey, and good evening from Israel. Um, there is a lot to talk about tonight and uh, domestic politics is certainly at the forefront of uh, what's going on in Israel and what's going on with most uh, uh, Israelis, uh, uh, the thought process, uh, what they expect. But I thought today we'd start a little bit more uh, regionally. Um, since last week, we had the, you know, sort of uh, not unex unexpected uh, announcement that Morocco would uh, normalize ties or, uh, you know, in, in some respect, even uh, reforge ties because there were some ties uh, between Israel and Morocco after the Oslo process during the early 90s, but uh, they ended as uh, many other uh, burgeoning ties did uh, at the beginning of the Second Intifada, the beginning uh, around 2000, 2001. Uh, but uh, this week, um, it turns out that Israel-Morocco are going to forge a new alliance. And again, like some of the other recent ones, it's not going to be just a cold peace, the likes of which uh, Israel has enjoyed with uh, Egypt since 1979 and uh, Jordan 1994. The recent peace, uh, uh, normalization agreements for relations, whatever you want to call it, with the UAE, with uh, Bahrain, Sudan, and now Morocco, of a different nature, um, at least with the UAE, to a large extent Bahrain, and it seems Morocco, that these are not just going to be sort of formal relations where we will have an embassy, they'll have an embassy, we will have uh, ties just at the highest level. Um, you know, there's very little people-to-people uh, -people ties with Egypt, with Jordan. In fact, there's a lot of antagonism and probably majorities in both countries are against ties with Israel and certainly are highly critical. Uh, some of the uh, more recent normalization uh, agreements or peace deals, if, if you want to refer to them that way, seem to be of a completely different nature. There does seem to be an interest in forging closer ties with Israel. As, as I uh, talked last week, I myself came back from Dubai where I, I walked around visibly Jewish, visibly even to a certain extent Israeli. There were people speaking Hebrew on the uh, on the streets and the, uh, the locals that we encountered were extremely welcoming and said, please bring more people. And it seems that the Israelis have certainly picked up the gauntlet. There are expected to be something like 14,000 Israelis uh, in uh, the UAE over this month. Uh, Bahrain also uh, a little bit behind, but still there's a lot of movement there. There are Bahraini senior officials in Israel uh, recently. Sudan, obviously, that's a whole different uh, sort of level. Um, but even there, it does seem like there's an interest in forging greater ties. And it's not just about getting Sudan off the terrorist list, which is something that the Trump administration uh, has uh, done in the last few days. And now we see Morocco. And what, what's quite unexpected, I think, with Morocco, considering there is still a large contingent, uh, perhaps even some sort of plurality, uh, against uh, normalization agreement in the country. We do see steps 
uh, being taken to forge new alliances and greater understanding between the populations. Uh, we heard also this week that the Moroccan education system will teach about Jewish history, teach about the Jewish connection to Morocco. And that's to a certain extent what makes this particular deal uh, quintessentially different for Israelis. What we've got to understand is out of 9 million Israelis, uh, around 7 million of which are Jewish, at least 1 million have direct ties to Morocco. These are people who are one or two generations from Morocco. They, you know, they still maintain very much uh, Moroccan culture, food. Uh, many of them will speak Arabic or French. Uh, and even some of them have uh, ties uh, in the country. Morocco is one of the few places in the Arab world that still maintains a Jewish community. It's a relatively small Jewish community, but it's one protected by the crown, by the king. It's one that has very good relations. There are events every year. Uh, which the Jewish community are invited to. Uh, there are, there have been uh, Jews who visit uh, Morocco to visit the graves of uh, uh, rabbis, one and rabbis or relatives. It is a place where Jew can feel relatively free uh, to go. So, so it was always one that was relatively friendly uh, to Jews, uh, definitely uh, in respect to some of the other Arab countries. But as I said, I think for a lot of Israelis, this did feel a little bit different. Some. Uh, uh, Israeli ministers or Israeli members of Knesset with Moroccan ties welcomed this, especially some of them dressed up in Moroccan uh, dress, uh, and they really celebrated this as something a little bit different. This is uh, closer to them, closer to their roots, closer to their culture. But what I think is happening, and this was the, the title of tonight's webinar, is does this signal the end of the Israeli-Arab conflict? As we know, uh, the Israel-Palestinian uh, conflict has been raging or, or sort of the war against uh, Jewish sovereignty in, in our ancestral and indigenous homeland has raged for over 100 years. And for most of it, or at least the early part of it, it was uh, mostly uh, localized um, during the middle part of the last century with the Arab League boycott and then the Arab League taking steps against uh, Jewish citizens in their countries. And then many of its members joining in uh, with the local uh, Palestinians or the Arabs of Palestine uh, against uh, Israel uh, in the War of Independence, it became pretty much uh, an Israel-Arab conflict. We saw uh, further conflicts in 56 and 67 and 73, where not just, you know, there were, there were quite a few armies against Israel. And 79, we saw, you know, the first sort of punctured hole in that. And we saw one of the big countries in the region, Egypt, uh, forge peace with Israel. And there has been no conflict between Israel and Egypt since then. Uh, and then, as I said, in 1994 with Jordan. But as I said, th these were, these were uh, uh, agreements born out of necessity. They were actual conflicts. You know, these, these, these two nations sit on Israel's border. Uh, these were born out of necessity. They were coal peace. You know, the, the Peace with Jordan is very much protected by the uh, by the king and the royal family. It's not one that's popular amongst the people, especially when at least two thirds, if not more, of the population are Palestinian. In Egypt, it's deeply unpopular. Um, but what we've seen now is we've seen four other countries, which makes it a total of six Arab countries out of 22 Arab League countries, who are now have uh, some sort of formal level of peace with Israel. So I think it's fair to say. And, and it's very, very possible that we'll see more and more countries. Saudi Arabia obviously are making moves towards Israel, allowing its planes to fly over. Uh, 
our prime minister was uh, in Saudi Arabia meeting with uh, uh, MBS uh, a couple of weeks ago. So we can see Saudi Arabia not a million miles away. Uh, prime Minister Netanyahu was in Amman uh, in recent years, et cetera, et cetera. So it really does seem that the, the era of the Israel-Arab conflict is over. And what we've seen uh, most tellingly, uh, especially with this recent uh, steps taken by Morocco is that the Palestinians have understood that they are standing in the face of history. The interesting thing is when the UAE uh, came out with, uh, with recognition, Bahrain, uh, even Sudan, there was a lot of outpouring of anger. There was a hostile communiques coming up from the Palestinian Authority. They worked very hard to make sure that their views that this was uh, incorrect, that this was not in keeping with the Arab League initiative, was known really some some very hostile comments made and uh, in, in Palestinian society, a lot of outrage against these countries. The interesting thing is that after the Morocco, uh, uh, you know, communique or, or, or the understanding that there was going to be normalized ties, you, you heard almost nothing from the PA. And in fact, according to commentators in Israel, there was actually a signal sent out by the Palestinian leadership not to react in any way, shape or form. There was not a tweet, there was not an official response, there was nothing from any of the Palestinian leadership, because I, it, it seems to, uh, uh, to me that they've now understood that there is something happening here. And by calling up these countries, by calling all sorts of names, traitors and all the rest of it, they're only harming their own relations with these countries. Uh, so what we see is the Palestinians have understood that this is happening and this is going to continue happening and they can't just uh, you know, uh, spite themselves uh, by coming out with these, you know, outrageous uh, statements against these countries because these are countries which they need. Uh, they still need these countries for many, many different things, diplomatically, economically, etc. But what it does show is they understand that this is what's happening. The Israel-Arab, or let's just say the Arab uh, line of assistance to Israel has been broken. The Arab League initiative is pretty much being rent asunder. Um, and the Palestinians have understood now that the rules of the game are different. Uh, just a few minutes, because it's very important to go into what's going on at the moment uh, locally. Um, it seems that this is the last week of this coalition. The debate now seems to be whether we're going to go for elections based on the lack of budget, which uh, we talked about uh, will be most of the government or, or the Israeli political process thought that we had uh, until Wednesday night, in other words, between Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, but now it seems that the uh, Knesset legal advisors say we've got Tuesday night, Tuesday, 12 o'clock, between Tuesday and Wednesday, which gives almost no time, not just to come up with a compromise, but also even to come up with a law to disperse the Knesset, which, as we discussed previously, would give uh, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu a lot more of a free hand in deciding when elections would take place. And, as we spoke about before, he would like them to be as further away as possible to give uh, the atmosphere in the country um, a chance to improve with, with you know, uh, a mass vaccination program, which is going to start as of next week. Prime Minister Netanyahu himself has said that he will be the first person to be vaccinated, which is going to happen Saturday night, maybe even live. President as well, the chief of staff, the top medical people in the country are all going to be uh, vaccinated either uh, live or publicly or, or whatever it is. There's a big drive at the moment on with that. 
but the fact remains that it seems to be at this point that the situation has uh, spun out of control, uh, certainly from the Prime Minister. It seems like even if they wanted a compromise, and it seems that uh, uh, Defence Minister Gantz and uh, Netanyahu are looking for some compromise, even though apparently contacts are pretty much uh, non-existent at this moment. Uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu is prepared to offer Gantz quite a lot, but he said he wants another exit point. This is what these, this whole political crisis has been about, giving Prime Minister Netanyahu an exit point so that he can leave the government without having to hand over to uh, Defence Minister Gantz the keys to Balfour House, uh, uh, to the House on Balfour, which is the Prime Minister's office. Um, so basically he wants another exit point and which apparently is a non-starter with Gantz, he wants the resignation of Justice Minister Avi Nissenkorn, someone who's seen as very much in favor of judicial activism, something that the Likud and Prime Minister Netanyahu have claimed to be against, uh, stood against for many years, but it seems like that's a non-starter. Um, but as I said, even if they could work out some compromise, it doesn't seem like Gantz has much of a party uh, to go back to already. We've seen uh, Derek Heretz, uh, Hauser, and Hendel, who have moved across to Gidon Saar's new party, uh, Shasha Biton, who was uh, the head of the Corona Committee in the Knesset, has also moved across to Gidon Saar's party. Um, so it's, it, it seems like even if there was some sort of compromise, A, the clock has almost run out, and B, I'm not sure if Netanyahu will be able to get a majority in the Knesset. But either way, it seems like next week is the crunch week, and if there is no compromise, if there is no law to disperse the Knesset, we go for elections uh, three months from December 23rd. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions on any of these issues or anything else. All right, thank you so much. So the first question is, the internet is suggesting that two more Muslim countries are on the verge of opening embassies in Israel. The two likely candidates are allegedly Oman and Indonesia. If that is correct, can you comment on this? Um, I mean, we know Oman are not a million miles away. Prime Minister Netanyahu has visited Oman. Um, it seems that there's quite a strong relationship there. Um, Indonesia is a very interesting one because although it's not an Arab country, it's the most populous Muslim country. I spent a little bit of time there myself. And um, at the highest levels, they're certainly not hostile towards Israel, but uh, in Indonesia, at least, there has been quite a growing Islamist movement. Um, the president, uh, uh, Jokowi, um, is, is trying to, has tried to present himself as more of a moderate uh, Muslim leader over the years, but his opponents, Prabowo and some of the others, have tried to uh, rouse the Islamist feeling uh, in a country that used to be very tolerant uh, and, you know, uh, basically sort of Southeast Asia uh, version of Islam, which was more tolerant and op uh, open, they even have a word for it, which uh, escapes me at the moment, but there has been a growing movement towards a more militant or more strict uh, form of uh, Islam over the years. So I think it would probably be welcome at the top level. They have quite good relations with Israel uh, under the table, behind the scenes. And there has been uh, some steps towards Israel re uh, in recent years with allowing a certain amount of visas to be presented to Israeli passport holders. Um, but that would be a big, a big um, coup if Indonesia would uh, recognize and open relations with Israel. Oman would be nice, it would be another country, 
It's not certainly not the most significant country in the region, um, but obviously any continuation of this uh, momentum would be welcome. I'm sure those are two countries uh, which are being looked at. Um, there's probably a, a few others, but probably Oman is in the next level uh, of those that uh, could possibly normalize relations with Israel, but uh, we've been surprised before, so one never knows what will come in the days ahead, and hopefully there will be more and more and more. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, do we know where these, at this time, where these embassies will be located? I mean, I, I was, we were asked that question before. Um, I, I don't see any Arab or Muslim country opening an embassy in Jerusalem. I think that would just be too incendiary um, for some of their own publics and for the Palestinians. Um, I'm assuming that they'll open where the vast majority of embassies in Israel are, in Tel Aviv or somewhere on the coast. Uh, I don't see any of them opening in Jerusalem uh, at this point. Uh, what do you think is the driving force for these peace deals and does the US government play an important role? Absolutely, it plays a crucial role. In fact, I would say it plays the most crucial role. Uh, if you can see, um, you know, I, I started saying before that, that these do seem like uh, a different sort of level, different sort of warmth uh, to, to the two agreements we've had for uh, a few decades. Um, but at the end of the day, each of these countries has gained something. UAE had the uh, F-35s. Um, Sudan has been taken off the list of terrorist uh, groups. Morocco uh, were basically had Western Sahara recognized as part of their territory by the US. Uh, Western Sahara is a territory, uh, disputed territory. In fact, it's considered occupied territory by the United Nations and very few uh, countries in the world recognize it's part of Morocco. Morocco considers it part of its own territory and the US basically uh, recognized it as part of Morocco. So that was a major step. So each country has got something out of this deal. Um, but I really think that uh, there is that level, but there's also a level where, I, I, as I said, I think the concept of the Israel-Arab conflict is pretty much uh, dissipated in many of these countries. They understand that they shouldn't allow their relations with another country be dictated by the Palestinians. They understand the Palestinians have uh, you know, been the victims of their own uh, decisions uh, over the years. And if they have to wait for them to have better relations with Israel, uh, then they may never happen. And I think a lot of these countries are starting to understand Israel is not the enemy. Obviously in the background to a lot of this is Iran. Uh, there, there is a mutual foe, an enemy in Iran. Uh, Iran is a threat to many of these countries, more so than Israel uh, presents, uh, certainly. Uh, so I think uh, all of these factors are really enabling this process, but absolutely the US administration has been the driving force behind each of these normalization agreements. And a follow-up to that, if the Biden administration for some reason didn't follow through on Trump's promises to the Arab states, what is your best guess as to what they would do? Well, it depends which. I mean, the Sudan one has already been done. They've been taken off the list. Uh, I'm not sure exactly how it works in the American system, whether they, whether it has to go through Congress or whether they need to, uh, whether it could be put back so easily. I, I, I probably, I don't think, I mean, it would be a, a major step. Uh, as far as the F-35s, um, Again, I'm not 100% I'm not sure on, on what exactly is going on. And UAE has come out and said that even if there was some halt to that, they would still 
uh, you know, keep up with the normalization, with the warm relations with Israel. Um, so, you know, it, it, it remains to be seen. Could, could Marco rescind their recognition of Israel or recognition of formal relations if the Biden administration unrecognizes Western Sahara? Again, it's, it's always harder to put something back in when it was taken out. Like, you know, would, would uh, President-elect Biden recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital? Probably not. But will he de-recognize it, if that is even a term? Uh, unrecognize it, I, I doubt it. And he himself has said no. So I think once these decisions are made, it's a lot harder to go back on them. Uh, but it's the question remains is whether he will push forward with uh, this sort of momentum and, you know, try and see where else we can uh, have more uh, agreements with Israel, more recognition, more normalization. That uh, remains to be seen, whether he'll then go back to the Obama era of sort of inside out, we're focusing on the Palestinians and believing that is the route to peace in the Middle East, as opposed to the Trump administration, which is outward in. Um, that remains to be seen, and I'm sure we'll find out in the weeks ahead. Thank you. What may be the final disposition of the Palestinians with this somewhat normalization of relations with so many Mid East Arab states? I mean, they're, they're livid, they're extremely angry. They were promised that according to the Arab League initiative, uh, which was released at the beginning of the 2000s, beginning of this uh, millennium, beginning of the century, uh, that basically that no country, no Arab League country would have relations with Israel until the Palestinian uh, uh, issue was solved. In fact, it promised full relations with every Arab country once peace was agreed to with the Palestinians. So it put the Palestinian issue first and even gave the carrot of full relations with all these countries if and when the Palestinian issue should be resolved. What these countries are doing, whether they admit to it or not, is they are basically going against the Arab League initiative. A lot of these countries are coming out formally and saying we still stand uh, to the vision of the Arab League initiative, but quite clearly they don't because that central point is the central point, has basically been uh, stood on its head. So the Palestinians feel that uh, uh, you know, the, the, the Arab solidarity is weakening. Uh, they feel betrayed. And they understand that uh, they're losing out with every normalization agreement. Is there a potential problem with the Iranian intelligence agents, intelligence agents <laughs> operating in Shia Bahrain? In where? Bahrain. I'm sorry? Bahrain. I mean, uh, most of the most of the Arab world uh, has a worry about what Iran is doing, um, and I don't think uh, Bahrain, as being a majority Shiite country, certainly is one that uh, uh, is is most worried. Um, so, I, I, but but the, these are countries which are worried about Iran on a day to day basis. They understand the destabilizing nature nature of Iran. They understand what Iran is trying to do. Um, so they are all worried, uh, Bahrain, no more, no less than many of the other countries uh, in the region, in the Gulf especially. Moving on to the local elections. Uh, after the elections, is there anyone who would join a new government with Netanyahu as prime minister other than the ultra-Orthodox parties? Well, like everything, it depends if you take these people their words. Don't forget we have a coalition now with Benny Gantz, a man who said throughout three elections that he would not sit with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu. So a lot of Israelis take these 
promises with a pinch of salt. Gidon Saar has said on a few occasions since he created this uh, party, New Hope, uh, that he will not sit with uh, Netanyahu. The, uh, Lieberman has said many times that he won't sit with Netanyahu. Uh, Lapid has said that. Uh, so the big question is, is Bennett. Bennett is the big wild card because Bennett has not said that. Um, he has no great love or affection for Netanyahu and it goes both ways, but he has not uh, ruled out sitting with Netanyahu. And in fact, he will be crucial, although his numbers have certainly gone down since uh, Saar entered uh, the race. In fact, he went from 22 in polls last week to now down to 13. And, you know, th those probably the vast majority of those votes went uh, for Gidon Saar. But still, if we, if we do the numbers, Bennett will be an absolute crucial kingmaker because if you add up uh, what they could have expected to get with the ultra-Orthodox, they cannot possibly even hope to form a government without Bennett. The other side, the anti-BB sort of uh, uh, group. In fact, Victor Liebman has said, why don't we all run together or some sort of collaboration between Yeshua Betenu, Yamina, Gidon Saar's party, uh, Gantz and Lapid. Actually, I don't think he included Gantz, but in theory. And Gantz is getting very close to the uh, electoral threshold. He went down to five seats in, in one poll. But together, they could potentially form a government. I think in the last poll, they got around 60 together uh, with merits, you know, that would be up to 65, but the question is, could those parties sit with merits? But the fact is the numbers are getting very, very close. And as we said last uh, week, you know, it could come down to one vote here, one vote there. Again, these are polls. And until we have our elections being officially called, until we know who's running, um, you know, these polls are, are nice, but they're relatively irrelevant uh, because none of these figures will come true. And There'll be a lot of uh, change. We already hear Gabi Ashkenazi is probably going to retire from politics and who's going to join Saar and who's going to join this. And a lot of people are jockeying, even as we speak in the Knesset, to see which party uh, they will join. You know, we'll see more defections from the good. Um, we'll see probably Eisenkot coming into the race, maybe Ron Khaldei, the, the Tel Aviv mayor, uh, perhaps in his own party, perhaps with someone else. You know, so until we know exactly what these are, it'd be very, very difficult uh, to know exactly what the map is going to look like. Um, but it definitely, Prime Minister Netanyahu is going to be sweating a lot more this week, having seen Gidon Saar enter the ring. And what we have seen, I think that speaks to this, is the fact that they are now attacking Gidon Saar and kind of leaving Naftali Bennett's Yamina, who they've been attacking incessantly before that, uh, because they know that the day after, they will probably have to run to Bennett and see what uh, deal can be made. And that's probably the only chance that Netanyahu has of forming the next government. Understood. Uh, will the joint list continue to oppose the normalization process? And is there a chance they were, will participate by creating political alliances in the Knesset more fully in the future? Um, I mean, the, the joint list, again, the joint list is three parties. There's the uh, Arab Nationalist Party, you have the Communist Party, which also has some Jewish members, and you have the Islamist uh, list uh, run by Mansour Abbas, uh, the Ram Party, but which has actually been cozying up, if you will, uh, to Netanyahu recently, uh, and have been developing a new strategy to, you know, sort of quid pro quo. If we get some of the things for our communities, then we can certainly see ourselves uh, siding with you on certain issues. 
Um, so that, by the way, that could actually be crucial. As I said, one seat here, one, seat, one vote here, one vote there, even in the next few days on when the elections can be held, Mansour Abbas and his, uh, I, I think there's three other people in his party on the joint list, those folks could be absolutely crucial for Netanyahu in the days ahead. And certainly uh, after the next uh, elections. So having four people abstain from the opposition could allow uh, Netanyahu not to have to reach 61, maybe he could even have 58 or something like this. Again, these numbers are very important and, and there's no coincidence that these things are happening now when every single vote counts. In fact, the Likud are trying to get Shasha Bitton out of the Likud list because she's already said she's joining uh, Gidon Saar's list in the next elections, but she still remains a Likud member. And uh, uh, Miki Zahar, who's the coalition chairman, is trying to uh, basically chuck her out of the Knesset because every vote will count over the next few days. Um, so the Arab list is not united at this point. They probably will run together. Uh, again, there's also moves, although I doubt we'll have time, uh, to lower the threshold, the electoral threshold, back to one something remarkably low as 1.5%, which our lists could actually run separately again. But I, I think that now there's probably too little time to pass that sort of legislation at this point. Thank you. And what is the status of the Israeli projects at IBI and Migal to develop COVID-19 vaccines? Well, they're now, uh, they're now in human trials. I, I believe they just finished on stage two. They're expected uh, to uh, hopefully be releasing the actual vaccine by the summer. There are a lot of questions in Israel about whether there is a need to continue. In fact, there are some senior health ministry officials who have called for uh, this whole uh, local domestic uh, clinical trials to stop. They're basic. Their point is it's a bit of a waste of money because we are getting all these international vaccines. We're going to have, I believe, 8 million Pfizer vaccines by the end of March. We're going to have 4 million over the next uh, couple of months and then another batch of 4 million uh, in March, I believe. Uh, and then we've also got deals with Moderna and a few others. So there are those in the health ministry who are basically calling for the end of the trials in Israel because they said by the time they come out with their vaccine, Everyone who wants to will already be vaccinated. Um, but uh, I think they're going to carry on. Uh, it's a different type of vaccine. It's a more traditional vaccine, as opposed to the RIs and Moderna putting out. So I think there's also some national pride there. And also, it's useful to have your own domestic vaccine. And it's possible that we will need an annual vaccine. So it's helpful to have something more domestically. Uh, created. So I don't see it being uh, stopped, even though there are voices in the health ministry against the continuation of these. All right. Well, thank you so much. We've come to the close of our webinar. Thank you, Ashley, again, for taking time to update us this week. And for our viewers, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Winfield Myers updating us on Campus Watch. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a great day.